grab your Bible. This morning, we will be entering into our second mini-series in the book of Colossians. So open up to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to, our focus is going to be on verses 27, 28, and 29. Page 983 in the Bibles provided for you in the pews or whatever page your Bible has. But we're going to start with verse 24 and read through verse 3 of chapter, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 2. Hear these words of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen, my, seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, to say this in order that no one may, may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we come off of a, if you will, a Christmas buzz. Um, I know my kids are still kind of enjoying, you know, I still hear my son say, this was the best Christmas ever. And if you were here Christmas Eve, it was because he got an iPad. And it's like, oh, it's the best Christmas ever. I'm sure that this is going to kind of wear off over time, right? Like every Christmas present. But this was the best Christmas ever. It was, it was something that he was able to open up. It felt a little heavy. There was a little excitement to go, what is in this box? And he could even see, looking at mom and dad, like, oh, you are going to love this. And, of course, as soon as he opens it, the, the thrill, the excitement just broke out like, I can't believe it! An iPad! And of course we made him wait to get it all set up and start. But you could see there was anticipation. I can't wait to start downloading apps, playing my games on this thing. So we all love a great mystery. We love kind of opening up things and seeing that there's a treasure, something great and exciting inside of it. So we look at this section of scripture and we see what is going on. There is, in this section of Scripture, verses 27, 28, 29, there's anticipation, there's some, some joy found in this treasure. There's a blessing found in this treasure. It talks about the most amazing gift ever. And this mystery 
Our kids can barely wait the few weeks of seeing a present underneath the tree. They had a hard time waiting to unwrap it. But this mystery was kept hidden from ages and from generations and generations and generations. Kept under wraps for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now in Paul's time, in his age, in his generation, God chose to reveal this mystery to the saints. It is time to open up the gift. You can almost sense the thrill of anticipation and excitement in Paul's voice as he prepares to pull back the curtain and open the, this treasure chest, this gift, and to reveal this spectacular mystery. And verse 27 tells us that this mystery is full of the riches of glory. This is no ordinary mystery. This was the Paul piles on words here to paint a picture of something that is lavish, magnificent, splendiferous. How do you like that word? It is an absolutely amazing gift. And to look in on it is something like a mystery. It would be like exploring this, this amazingly lavish palace. And you, it's room upon room upon room. And each time you enter a, a new room, it's like, this is amazing. Who is the one that owns all these things? It, this person must be the most wealthy, amazing, generous person to have all these things. So it says something about the character of the gift giver. It says how great, how, how vast are these riches of the glory of this mystery. So what is it? What is this gift? It's read for us in verse 27. Three simple words. Christ sure if I would kind of put that underneath the Christmas tree and have one of my kids open it up and say, Ah! Christ in you? Really, Dad? Just Christ in you? That's it? This is that magnificent, lavish, splendiferous kind of gift that you've been talking about this whole time? Christ in you? And maybe you have that same reaction. Really, that's it. That is this magnificent gift that you, Paul has been building up at and you kind of find yourself yawning and going, what? That's it? But imagine the very image of God, the head of creation, the creator God himself, the head of the church, the reconciler of all things, the one to whom all the fullness of God dwells is in you. Christ in you. What would be a greater mystery than that? That God himself says, I'm not only going to give you a gift, but that gift is going to be Christ in you. The gift of all gifts. And yet this is the very gospel itself. That as many who receive Christ, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children. And children not born of the will of a husband and a wife, but very will of God, born of God. And how? Through the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Jesus, who comes to take up residence in the hearts and the lives of those who believe in him. So what is this hope of glory thing? 
Well, the hope of glory has a way of looking backwards and a way of looking forwards. It looks both ways. The hope that God gave, the, the glory of God, was first given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the creation of Adam and Eve, created out of dust, taken out of the side of Adam. God created, and they were created in the very image of God. The glory of God was, was made, they were made in the image of God. And so they were living in absolute perfect harmony, in bliss. The glory was then shattered in Genesis chapter 3 at that first rebellion. The glory is now only seen in our lives, seen faintly, seen in our affairs, and it's obscured in our selfish ways, ravished by our, our sinful hearts, your sinful hearts. Broken relationships, we can all attest, right? We just got back from Christmas and New Year's functions, right? We can all say, oh, I, I, let, me, let me tell you about broken relationships. Let me tell you about dysfunctional families. In fact, you might be the very center of dysfunction yourself. Not in this church, right? <laughs> broken relationships. Fractured societies. We see poverty. We see injustice. We see oppression. We see pain so deep that it seems unspeakable and absolutely almost incurable. What is going to solve this problem that is so deep that it tears our world apart? And this is all because we all have left the path. We have fell short of the glory of God by seeking our own selfish ways, our desires, our wants, our needs. And now what does God do? God promises the hope of that glory, that original glory, to return. The perfect shalom, the perfect peace, the perfect bliss and harmony. And he promises it to return now as, as we let Christ dwell in us and bring that peace back to our lives. So that's the way of looking back as to how it was originally meant to be and how there's a hope of glory to return but there's also a way of looking forward in verse uh, 3 chapter 3 or 4 it says when Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with him in glory so it has this futuristic kind of sense as well it's not just looking back and saying that is what was broken and God is going to restore that it's also looking forward saying when Christ appears, who is my life, I will appear with him in glory. So there's this, this future hope. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, To this you he called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a futuristic kind of sense as well. So not only are we looking back, but we're looking, anticipating. We will be with Christ. The hope of glory, this indwelling of the exalted Christ, is the assurance of this, this coming glory. And this is not just a vague possibility. It's not, man, I, I'm going I'm to put it all down on black right now and just hope that uh, the dice rolls just right. Or maybe I'll, I'll put it on this or I'll put it on 
comes through for me. No, in fact, it is an assured hope. An assured hope. It will absolutely happen. This is the hope that Paul has already referred to, laid up for us in heaven, like it's waiting for us to open in its fullness, its, its full glory. I can't wait to see that. I'm anticipating that one day to see it fully revealed. The hope of the gospel, the hope that the sufferings of this present life are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed See a glimpse of it here, Christ in me, the hope of glory, but oh, wait. Wait. Wait for it. It will be fully revealed on that one day. But that's not all. That's not it. There's something even more remarkable in this mystery. Not just Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It goes on in, in verse 27. There is this phrase that would have blown the people of that day just out of the water. <coughs> Did you notice the phrase in verse 27? It says, how great among the Gentiles. For you, you're going, not a baby, not a big deal. But originally, this, was, this present was seen as just a Jewish present for people, God's people, saved for them. Man, this is an amazing gift for us. But now it is being opened up for the entire world. The Gentiles, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, were separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And they were strangers to the covenant of the promise. And on top of that, having no hope. No hope. They were without God in the world. So now it's saying, how great is this mystery among you, the Gentiles? And you were once these people having no hope. You were strangers. You were aliens. You were even hated by many people. And now God is doing what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. For who? Not only the Jews, but now those who were far from. It has been opened up to all. So here's the greatest depth of the mystery. That those who were far off have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. The work of Jesus Christ have been brought near so that they are no longer strangers. They are no longer aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household. We are now co-heirs with one another. And that is why God chose to make this, how great is this mystery? Mystery is to the Gentiles to display, listen, it's not just a special little reserved gift. I am going to explode it all out for all people, Jews, Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised, strangers, family members. It is open to all who receive Christ. Christ in you, Gentile Colossians. Christ in you, that is the greatest mystery of all. Of all people. You. Here of all places, the wealth of God is just lavish. <coughs> wave upon wave upon wave upon wave. It's just lavish on these people who do not deserve one Savior. 
So what? Right? It, it's really easy when you get a gift and you just sit underneath the tree and just kind of have an iPad coma, if you will. But like, my, not talking about my son, but there's kind of this mentality, I am just going to consume this and be caught in this world all by myself, right? I'm just going to enjoy this present, this gift. You see it when raising children. I love my kids. And you become so you know, kid-centric. You get this with, you, you're freshly married. You love this spouse. I love this person. And you become so spouse-centric. And you love your job or the wealth or whatever. And you become so centric. It's just, this is all right here in my world. And this seems to be all that I can see. And this letter could almost just kind of wrap up right here with us kind of being caught up in the wonder and the glory of Christ in me, the hope of glory. This is absolutely amazing. We could just live happily ever after, enjoying Christ in me, a nice little cozy country club of Christians, right? And we can kind of put kind of some safety mechanisms on, on this Christ in me, the hope of glory, and kind of keep out people who don't quite fit into my paradigm and my world, who might spoil my joy of enjoying this. So what would be so wrong about that, right? We could have a holy huddle, kind of a little ghetto of Christian joy and celebration. But what would be wrong is that, is that this Christ who now dwells within us Listen to this. The great shepherd of the sheep who seeks and saves the lost. Seeks and saves the lost. And so this Jesus inside of Paul, the Apostle Paul, it drives him to do something beyond just revel in the, the glory of worship. It, it pushes him out. Jesus made peace through the blood of the cross. He made a way for me, one who deserves none of it, but he made a way for me. Do I just revel in this and just, man, this is sweet, I love this, this is enjoyable for me and my own, or do I respond? If I do nothing, there is something that is lacking. And the thing that would be lacking is that this message of reconciliation, of making things right between God and mankind, must be proclaimed, shared <coughs> to the entire world. For faith comes from what? Hearing. hearing. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So how do people come to know Jesus Christ? How do they hear about this Christ in you, the hope of glory? Through hearing. Actually, hearing, not just I'm going to live a really nice Christian life and be this good moral example to the rest of the world, but I'm actually, actually going to share it so that my voice is heard because faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. So that kind of leads us to this next part. The first part is this, the reveling in the glory of Christ in you, the hope of glory, but it leads to the second part, which is this ministry that you and I all have. The ministry. We see this in verses 28 and 29. The first ministry, part, part of this ministry is the 
heart of the ministry. The heart of the ministry. Where your treasure is. Yeah, you, you can see this connection between where my heart, my joy is, and there is my treasure. Where my treasure is kind of reveals something about your heart. So there, there's this interconnectivity. And the very heart of Paul's ministry is him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. That's the heart of Paul's ministry. He is constantly and consistently preaching Christ as his heart and soul of his ministry. The false teachers of his day had another system of teaching, another heart. They were teaching a philosophy. They were teaching traditions of men. They were teaching rules and regulations that must be followed. But Paul had only one thing he knew. And in fact, that one thing was not a thing. It was a person. The one thing that he knew, and it was the very heart of his ministry, was Christ. Christ was the very center of his affections, the focus of his thinking. It was the, the example of his very living and the subject of his preaching. Christ, him we proclaim. He resolved to know nothing amongst the church in Corinth but Christ and him crucified. He proclaimed, he announced, and he made known the person and work of of Jesus Christ, that was the heart and soul of his ministry. Christ. Can we say the same for us? Can you say that in your own personal ministry, wherever you may be, that, you know what, the center of my affection, the, the center of my talk, the center of everything that I do, from that flows all of this, is Christ? That is to be the heart and soul of our ministry. That people, when they, they come in contact with us, they go, there is something really strange about you. Something other about you. Not strange like weird, but strange like there's something attractive about you. And I don't know quite what it is, and we can say, let me tell you what it is. Christ in me, the hope of glory, and him will I proclaim with my words and my life. But how do we take this heart and soul of ministry and take it out and, and proclaim him? Well, Paul had a method to his ministry. And he did it in three different ways. Through proclaiming or preaching. He did it through warning and teaching. Those three things. So proclaiming, he did it through warning, he did it through teaching. He proclaimed Christ. To proclaim means to announce with authority as a herald. So when a, when a pastor comes up or somebody is sharing the gospel, they are coming as if you are a herald. Someone who is coming with an announcement from the king himself and saying, Hear ye, hear ye. Hear the good news. Let me tell you he's coming. Or he has come. Or here is what is going to be lavished upon you. So Paul was proclaiming Christ. He was announcing loudly the good news of this Christ who came and is coming again. Christ was the beginning and the end of his message. As George Whitfield said, George Whitfield was this old itinerant preacher from way back when. He said, other men may preach the gospel better than I. In other words, they got this amazing talent to preach the gospel. They may attract large, huge crowds. But he goes on to say, but no man can preach a better gospel. 
The gospel doesn't change. The message is always the same. Maybe you will have different talents and different methods and means to communicate that. Maybe God will bring to you a larger crowd or a smaller crowd. Whatever it is, the method is always Christ. Proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. The message never changes. So wherever you go to church, if you leave Missy O'Day Church and find another church because you're moving or you're disgruntled, who knows why, you need to listen carefully and say, is Christ being proclaimed? Am I hearing the clear gospel every Sunday? Is that the heart and the soul of this church? But it doesn't just end with the, the proclamation, the, the, the announcing, the preaching. Paul also applied warning. He warned everyone. When preaching the gospel faithfully, it brings about people who will believe in Jesus Christ. It's like they often their eyes are opened up like, this is amazing good news. So it brings about people who are, are converted. They have been changed by this good news. But after that, that is never enough for the Apostle Paul. He spent time warning everyone. Warning everyone. Which means that he corrected or he he warned them about stuff. The meaning of this word was to, to admonish, to correct, to, to put right, to put in proper order. And if many of you who you look back at your life, you look at that mark when, man, I received Christ, I responded to the gospel, and then you look beyond that point to where you once were, you go, thank God somebody warned me. Thank God somebody said, uh-uh. Don't go there again. That is dangerous. It is quicksand. It is cancerous. It is deadly. It is like breathing in deadly fumes. Don't go there again. That Those behaviors, that thought pattern, that way of living is death to you. I'm warning you. I'm admonishing you. Don't do that. Nobody likes doing that, right? That's one of even the hard parts of parenting. Uh, 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 we'd much rather be the cheerleaders on the side, right? Good job, we go! Amazing! But nobody really likes to do that. You do that again? Dad is going to bring down the hammer. Because <laughs> then all of a sudden, what happens? The, there's guilt, and there's conviction, and there's sorrow, and there's tears, and there's you know, all that kind of going along. We're like, who are you to say that about me? But that is part of our gospel ministry is to warn people. No, we don't do that as self-righteous saying, hey, I'm better than you. But it's like, no, I have been there before. And there is a better way to live in Christ. So I'm warning you. And Paul did not shrink back from this unpleasant task of admonishing, of warning. Why? Cares. Paul cared about this congregation. And hear this, and I want to make this loud and clear, this is not just a job for pastors. Okay? This is not just a job for pastors. In fact, Colossians 3.16 says that we are to admonish one another. We're to warn one another. So that person that is sitting next to you is someone that you need to be warning and saying, hey, uh, I love you enough to say no. This is not right. 
So this is a ministry that we collectively do together. And here, here's the amazing thing. The church in Rome, you got this full book of Romans. Paul's like amazing book of theology. The church in Rome was considered to be a mature church. Why? Because they admonished one another. They were constantly sharpening each other. But that's not it. That's not where it stops. It's not enough that when we discipline and we warn each other that we stop right there. We've got to fill that void. And so what does Paul does? He spent also his time in teaching everyone. Teaching. The Greek text of, of verse 28 really wants to drive home this message that teaching everyone, everyone, because it's used three times, everyone. Paul proclaimed Christ. He admonished and he taught everyone because he truly believed that Christ was for everyone. And he saw the greatest potential in every soul that he touched. What a way to look at life. Are we as we proclaim Christ, as we warn people and admonish them, are we also saying, now let me show you. Come with me. Let me show you how it is done. That is called discipleship. That is what discipleship looks like. So we've got the heart and the soul of, of the ministry. We've got the, the ultimate methods of how do we do this ministry but what is the goal of this ministry? What is ultimately the thing that we are driving for, shooting for, kind of looking at the bullseye? What are we trying to do? The ultimate goal for Paul was to present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. And mature here means to finish or to complete, leaving nothing left to be done. Mature. Nothing left undone. Does that happen in this lifetime? Oh, no, if you looked at your life recently, you've got a lot to be done in your life. It is a mess. My life is a mess. Your life is a mess. Your spiritual life, your relational life, your financial life, all those things are left as this cluttered mess of stuff that needs to be brought to completion. So the goal of our ministry is to constantly be working in maturing one another to be found mature in Christ. So, so in relationship to our lives, when someone is grown up, there is no more growing up to be done. They are, they're complete. And spiritually, this is the goal of our ministry. That there's nothing left lacking in the people that we are working with. So if you are doing discipleship, if you are doing a, a missional community, or if you're doing children's ministry, you're doing women's ministry, you're doing men's ministry, you're doing whatever kind of ministry, your goal in all these areas is to present these people mature in Christ. That they have grown up. And your job never, ever ends. Spiritual maturity in Ephesians 4 is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Holy smokes. So basically, you look like Christ. You look like Christ. And Paul even goes on to say, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around 
by every wind of doctrine. We're able to mature, maturely say, oh, this is what it means. This is what it means to be look like Christ. And a true pastor is never, ever satisfied with anything less. Anything less than the full Christian maturity of every believer. And there are no exceptions. My desire, the, the desire of the elders is to see you mature in Christ. To see you grow up. That every week that passes, we can somehow see in your life, and sometimes it takes like years to see all these steps, but we can see that you are growing up in Christ. That the day that you die, we can say, holy cow. Look at where they have come from and where they left looking like. Look at the growth, the maturity in these people. And Paul's task and our task is not complete with the simple conversion of people. In some cases, as odd as this may sound, that might be the easy part. Seeing people come to life in Christ, because that's, that's really a lot of God's work of changing a heart, a soul, a mind, changing it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, right? Who does that? Not me. I can't do that. That's God's work. But then our work, along with the Spirit, is to get our hands dirty in the lives of these people. And we see the pushback. We see the pull. We see the fight that's within. The fighting against our flesh and the fighting against the spirit. It's constantly going back and forth. The gospel must be worked into people until they are mature. And that is never easy. In fact, Paul in Galatians described his church as this. He says this. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. So he's talking about these, these people that he's led to Christ, and he's describing it as seeing them mature as childbirth. And I have never, praise the Lord, gone through childbirth. I cannot even imagine, praise God, for godly, or just women. The, the pushing and the pulling and the, the strenuous, the sweating, the screaming and the yelling, all that that goes play, goes on in a is really easy for all of you. Is that what's going on? No, okay. But it is this strenuous blood, sweat, and tears moment. And Paul is saying, "My little children, for whom I am in anguish, I am in anguish, in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you." He is just constantly struggling and pushing and pulling to see them grow up. So the goal of our elders, our deacons, our children's ministry, the goal of our missional communities, the goal is to see Christ fully formed in you. So when you are pressed in your marriage, you're pressed in your workplace, you are, you are challenged in your private thought life, when you are sharing the road with those people who should not be driving anymore, and you have choice words, Christ ultimately comes out because he is being more fully formed in you. And this work goes on by the Spirit until our lives and his life are indistinguishable. But to sustain this kind of ministry and goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ, it must go beyond the strength of one person. It must. 
encouraging to read later on that all the members, all the members of the church in Colossae were expected to take share in this double ministry of warning and teaching one another. So Paul expects all people to re receive from him not only the message, but the ministry. So not only am I sharing this message with you, I'm imparting the ministry to you as well. So what's the scope of this ministry? The scope of this ministry, how broad is it? This ministry is for everyone. While it kind of narrows down to each individual, each person sitting here, it also broadens out to the whole entire world. This is not a mystery to be kept under wraps, to be kind of sealed in underneath a box that can be hidden and shown only to those that you like. No, in fact, it must be shared liberally and freely. You see, this, this letter that Paul wrote was written in a missionary context. First Paul, in, in Ephesus, was sharing the gospel freely and liberally, defending the gospel, sharing the gospel, teaching and warning. And in that ministry, Epaphras came to Christ. Epaphras was later on sent to the church in Colossae to be the pastor to this young, fledgling church where he proclaimed and warned and taught people. So this ministry has a scope that goes from one and it goes not one to just be shared personally, kept personally for you and yourself. A church was started. A church was started because of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And it radiated out. You see, if it is true that Jesus is the Savior, and if the only way for to get in on this is to receive and to hear it. It is only logical that we share the good news of Jesus Christ with our words in our life with everyone that we come in contact with. The scope is huge. It must be taken to every man, woman, and child. And we need to remember that here with Missio Day Church. And that it is to be taken not only here in our local neighborhood and in uh, New Lenox, but it must be taken to the greater Lincoln Way area and even beyond. This ministry is larger in scope. And while 2 billion across the globe in 2,000 people groups have yet to hear this glorious message of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the call goes out to us. What do you do with this message? How do we respond? send people. And I know I used to do this a lot. I said, we got to start praying for our kids. Is God birthing in them a missionary heart, not only to their school, their neighborhood, and their friends, but is God calling our children to go abroad? Do we dare pray those kind of prayers of God? Send Katie to the uttermost do I dare to say, God, send my 
Nigeria? Her brother will say no. But God is also birthing something in my daughter about going to Nigeria again. Do we dare pray those kind of prayers? God, you've given us these kids. You steward them. You taught them the gospel. We share the gospel. They're impassioned by this gospel. Take the Lord wherever that you call them. Because that should be a natural response is to send it out. That's the scope. But this kind of ministry is absolutely exhausting. If you've been in ministry in any way, shape, or form, you know it is hard work. And the truth is that no one can hope to have a biblically authentic kind of ministry without hard work. We've kind of grown up in America where, man, it should all just come easy, right? If I could just open up my house and just be kind and hospitable, it's just going to be easy. But the reality is, true biblical ministry, authentic ministry, is absolutely hard work. Paul's language in this verse is brutally compelling. The, line, the Greek word translated toil for us was used for work which, which left one so weary it was as if a person had taken a beating. I'm curious how many people have that kind of toilsome ministry mindset here today. It leaves you so weary it's almost as if you had taken a denotes labor to exhaustion. Struggling is even a stronger term than, than labor. And it was the Greek word which we derive the English word agony. Agony. It was used for agonizing in, a, in an athletic event or in a fight. It was just Hard, hard work. And these two words together describe the tremendous energy of Paul's apostolic ministry. He strained every physical and moral bit and piece of himself to present every man, woman, and child mature in Christ. He toiled. He struggled. He agonized. He did the hard, hard work. He strained every bit of himself. In Colossians 1, 2, verse 9, he pictures it this way. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Night and day. Toiling. And this minute ministry of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of, the, of glory, is not just something that you do when you show up to church. Or maybe you have kids ministry. Or you're doing some hospitality outside. Or maybe you're hosting people for your, your small group Bible study. That's, that's, not, that's not it. It is something that goes 24-7. Listen to, listen to how some ministers of the gospel worked. Mark Luther worked so hard that many days he just fell into bed. Fell into bed. D.L. Moody. One time his bedtime prayer was, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. 
so exhausted, he just, I can't do anymore. One of the Wesley brothers, or the uh, Charles Wesley, rode 60 to 70 miles many days of the week. Not in a Toyota, not in a minivan, but on horse. And not only did he ride 60, 70 miles a day, he preached three times a day. That's ministry. I get exhausted after one. And he did it seven days a week, three times a day. Alexander McLaren got up early as soon as he heard the workman's boots in the street. People are up. I need to be up. Does that thought exhaust you? If you say no, you're lying. Does it exhaust you? It should. How did these men do it? Susanna Wesley, uh, who is the wife of John Wesley, listen to her. To her absent husband, she wrote this. I am a woman, but I am also a mistress of a large family. And through the superior charge of the souls contained in it, lies upon you, though it lies upon you, yet in your absence I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed to me under a trust. I am not a man nor a minister, yet as a mother and a mistress, I feel I ought to do more than I have yet done. I resolve to begin with my own children, in which I observe the following method. I take such a portion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with each child part. On Monday, I talk with Molly. On Tuesday, I talk with Hetty. On Wednesday, I talk with Nancy. Thursday, with Jackie. Friday, with Patty. Saturday, with Charles. So some of you are going, well, thank God I'm not a pastor's wife, right? Thank God there's only one, and she's really talented. She's got a lot of energy, and she's she can handle it. Laura's pretty strong. Thank God I don't have to do this. G. Campbell Morgan, a British evangelist in the early 1900s, kept a newspaper clipping with him for 20 years, and it was entitled The Sheer Hard Work, and it read like this. What is true of a minister is true of every man who bears the name of Christ. We have not yet begun to touch the great business of salvation when we have sung, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. We have not entered into the business of evangelizing the city or the world until we have put our own lives into the business, our own immediate physical endeavor, endeavor inspired by spiritual devotion. So how do we do this kind of ministry? This exhausting, agonizing kind of ministry. I wish that I could say that the more faithful you are to Christ, the more Bible reading you do, the more prayers that you do, the more uh, small groups of ministry involvement that you're in, that it's just going to be easy and you're just going to have this natural kind of like a, a tractor beam of energy just kind of nailing you and you're just going to have this surge, this power surge of strength coming through and then you're going to have a natural glow about you wherever you go and that people that you touch are immediately going to be, oh Jesus, oh change my life. It doesn't work that way, but so many 
you more. You'll have more strength. The reality is Paul was saying, man, that is just not true of my ministry. We need to remember that, that as Paul toiled, and remember it was a particularly strong word that he used kind of to describe his backbreaking work. As Paul toiled in preaching and teaching and admonished, admonishing people, God granted him enough strength. Enough strength. And capacity for the work. God gives power to his workers. But not so much that we become like, look at me, and I don't need God. But enough strength to God to say, come back to me. Stay attached to me. Stay connected. Paul toiled and he struggled and he used great diligence and dealt with many difficulties in his own life. 2 Corinthians. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys into danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me in my anxiety for all the churches. And yet, yet, he did all those things according to the measure of given to him. And the amazing and extraordinary presence of Christ, which was with him, that is what strengthened him. It's not your amazing talent. It has nothing to do with you. Matthew Henry wrote this. The more we labor in the work of the Lord, the greater measures of help we might expect from him in it. According to the gift of grace, God has given unto me by the effectual working of his power. In fact, there seems like a correlation between our work and God's supply of energy. He supplies you with the strength to do it. You do not become the, the powerhouse yourself, but you're tapped into the powerhouse. In fact, that powerhouse is dwelling in you. Christ in me, the hope of the Lord. So you find yourself getting tired of ministry? Maybe there's a disconnect in your heart with the one that you are proclaiming and teaching others about and admonishing. There's a disconnect in your heart. So know this. It was a great struggle for Paul to see people mature in Christ. A great struggle as he was seeing Christ being formed in their hearts and their minds. But there is an even greater Christ providing dynamic energy needed to keep on keeping on. So, quickly, three applications. What do we, what do, a few applications. What do we take away from this? First, we all come with different needs, different places in life. Maybe the first thing for some of you is this, actually possessing Christ, possessing Him. 
Your life may be messed up. You're tired of writing things yourself. It's not working. You have no hope. There's no gloriousness in your life. You're far from Eden as you could possibly believe in. Heaven definitely is not in your future. You know it in your heart right now. There's no... If I die today, I am not going to heaven. There's nothing about my life that merits heaven. If you would turn from your sins and you would put your faith in the cross of Christ, you will forgive your sins. Forgive your sins and amazingly take up residence in your heart. So maybe the first thing is possessing Christ. Or maybe some of you is just maturing in Christ. And I'd say this is a good chunk of us to actually mature in Christ. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? If I be honest, I believe that Christ is in me. I know that he's in me. But I have got a long way to go to being mature. And maturity has nothing to do about your chronological age. I've met some amazingly mature children and some extremely spiritually immature adults. So maybe you need to grow up and let Christ be formed in you. And seeking out intentional discipleship relationships. Or just saying something. Hey, can we read scripture together? I, I, I don't mean like a big plan. I don't need to read huge books. I don't want to do a, read a systematic theology book. No, I just want to. Can we just read together? Because I need to grow up in Christ. I need to mature. Maybe for some of you, and this is another big chunk of us, we need to actually proclaim Christ. We need to open our mouths. We need to quit being scared. You know you are growing in Christ, and you have yet to proclaim Him and share Him. The effect of my life should be naturally sharing Christ. So for some of you, maybe it is taking those next steps of broadening the scope to others and sharing boldly, passionately, in wise kind of ways. And don't be those weird Christians, please. Don't be the weird ones. I may disown you. Don't be those weird, just say, hey, I've got myself a nice little pamphlet here. No, don't stand, don't stand at the grocery, grocery store door just handing out things or holding a picket sign. Don't be those people. Be people who are incarnational, wanting to live life in other people's lives and share life with them. Share meals together. And naturally, as it is part of your natural life, share Christ with them. Naturally. And be okay with calling the question, Exhausted, you cannot do another thing. 
I am just done. I have been expending all the energy that I have. Maybe that's the problem. You've been expending all the energy that you have. The reality is you need to not only pull up to the gas pump, but you need to actually tap into the whole oil field of energy that is within Christ in you. You need to spend more time with him. You need to worship him, draw near to him, and let his dynamic energy invigorate you so that you can see his work again in your life. But hear this. Whatever he's calling you today, do today. Philippians 4, 13 says this. I can do all things through Christ. I can do 